Tonight's reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, and it's titled Absalom's Conspiracy. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come down from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at a place some distance away. Decided to bring out my colors tonight because this is the best week of the year to be a ball fan. This week. This is when it's my favorite week of the year. Well, when we last checked in on the life of David, Nathan's prophecy that a sword was about to haunt his family. David's family has begun to be filled. Amnon, David's son, raped David's daughter Tamar, Tamar's brother. Amnon is murdered by Absalom in order to get revenge. And Absalom, who's heir to the throne, has fled the country. And when we pick up the story again tonight, He has been gone for three years. And chapter 14 tells us what happens in the interim. Joab, who is King David's hatchet man, knows that it's never a good thing when the heir to the throne is estranged from the king and in another country. So he goes about trying to figure out a way to bring 
them back together again, which he does, and David agrees rather reluctantly to bring his son back into Jerusalem. But when he gets there, David keeps him at an icy arm's length. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and didn't come in to see the king. And then the narrator cannot help but add, I think he works for People Magazine in his part-time. He says, now in all Israel, there was no one praised for this man's handsome appearance is Absalom. So... Uh, We are reminded again that this is a great-looking family that is entirely goofed up. This will also be an asset to Absalom when he runs for office in chapter 15. So then we read, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without ever coming into the king's presence. So here's the setting of our story tonight. You've got an estranged father and son who really have not talked with each other for five years The son has moved towards the father as much as he could, but David is reluctant. And someone pointed out to me that this is often the way it is in reconciliation, that the person with the power, the father, the mother, the pastor, the boss, is often the one that doesn't pursue the reconciliation. Often it's the son or the daughter or the congregant that is doing the initiation. Probably shouldn't be that way. But here's how chapter 14 ends. He comes, he bows himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, I've read this story many times. If if you've been around the block at all in church, you've heard this story many times. Uh, Pastors talk about this all the time. I had a pastor friend this week say that we talked about an Absalom. And, of course, we knew immediately what we were talking about and the story and, and, and all of that. History judges Absalom as a pretty terrible guy, and uh, I can't really argue against that. But I want to step back, and, and, and I want us to rethink for a moment the situation that, that this young prince is in. He is heir to the throne of Israel. Israel is a new and vulnerable monarchy surrounded by enemies, and from everything we can put together, David seems to have retired on the job. From everything we can read, David no longer seems to be leading. He he is not actively doing anything in the best interest of the kingdom. And so Absalom... If we give him any benefit of the doubt, this young man is watching his kingdom become increasingly vulnerable because his leader, his father, is not leading. And so what is he supposed to do? There's a leadership vacuum, and his distant and reclusive father does nothing to strengthen the kingdom. Have you ever been in that situation? a hard situation. Maybe it's in your family or at work or in some community that you're part of, and and you just have the sense that the leaders are not paying attention. They're They're not leading, and you can see what needs to be done, but you don't have the power and the authority to do it. It's a very frustrating challenge when there's a leadership vacuum 
like that. And I don't want to justify Absalom. I mean, he could have waited it out like David did with Saul. But, but again, are revolutions always bad? Is it always uh, wrong to revolt against unjust leadership? Uh, how about our own revolution? <laughs> How do, we, how do we think about that? Now, notice, too, that had David pursued reconciliation with Absalom, as he should have, as a godly father, this rebellion might never have happened. And one of the lessons that I think we need to take from a story like this is if there is relational chaos going on, in your family, in your world, in your work, and you have some dominion over it, some freedom to speak into it. If you don't do it and you remain passive, chaos and pain will be released into the community that you're leading. Now, I understand there are certainly times when we can't reconcile. But what I'm saying, I'm talking about the time where you haven't tried very hard yet. And you know what, you know what I mean. You're, you know the situation right now. You're thinking about a person. If you just look the way, look the other way like David did, it will not go away. It will get worse. It's kind of like a spiritual law of entropy. If you fail to deal with relational chaos, it will get worse. That's one of the lessons of this story. The rebellion begins. And I love the opening line. The, the narrator is just wonderful in this Second Samuel. He's after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. <laughs> He's running for office now. He's young and attractive and ambitious, and so he develops an entourage of chariots and runners, so every move seems like a royal procession. And again, keep in mind, in, the, in your back of your mind, one way you could read this story is the consequence of a father wound. This is the story of a, of a son who never reconciles to his father and what happens as a result. His whole life is in response to that wound. So he, he starts to offer himself as an alternative king, even though there's not a job opening. Uh, our text says that he stands out by the gate and all the people of Israel would come in to get a judgment from the king, and, and uh, the young prince would stop them and say, hey, hey, tell you what, I'll deal with your case. And by the way, I love the kid's eyes. Hey, where'd you get that toga? I love the chariot. You know, he just is kind of working it. And, and then at the end, he says, you know, he, just, he says, if I were judge in Israel, things would go so much better. If you elect me, this would be a better place. Now, he does this for four years, and, and I want to just hit pause here and, and do just a little bit of a segue, because 
one of the things I want us to pay attention to this fall is what happens when Israel's leaders veer away from God's vision for the kingdom. And I'm I'm not sure yet, but I think what we're going to do is after David, we're going to look at Solomon, and then I think we're going to look at a few of the prophets who start to call Israel back to that vision. It has some fascinating ramifications for churches and for societies. So let's step back just a second, because there was a vision for God's kingdom that is behind this story. You remember, it's, it's rooted in justice. Justice is in the heart of God. It's the, the character of God. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So God calls Abraham to create a community of justice and righteousness. Genesis 18, God says, Abram will surely become great and mighty, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. I've chosen him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So God's great plan for healing the world is to create this community of righteousness and justice. Uh, The Hebrew word is mishpat. It talks about the way God intended the world to be. The Anchor Bible Dictionary. It refers to the restoration of a situation or environment which promoted shalom in community. It's used 422 times in the Old Testament. It's that important? And it's often used in connection with the vulnerable, the poor and the depressed or oppressed. Job 29. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy, that, Lord, is why you know I'm just. So, one of God's top priorities for his leaders is that they lead justly. Because justice is part of his character. Creating a community of justice is his vision for healing the world. So, what happens? Well, the first leaders of Israel are judges. What does Moses say? He says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. He tells that to the the judges. And then... Psalm 72 says the same thing is true for the kings. Give the king your justice, O God. May he judge your people with justice and your poor with justice. And when David was doing well, the narrator describes his reign like this. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. I am going somewhere with this. Hold on. Jeremiah stands at the gate of the royal palace in Jerusalem declaring what's required of Davidic kings. He says to the king, Hear the word of the Lord, O king. Do justice and righteousness and deliver him from the hand of the oppressor. Proverbs 31, the king's mother says to him, Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. See, this is woven through the whole Old Testament. Every reader of the Bible understood this, that a godly leader ruled justly. And and remember, at this point in history, one of the king's primary jobs was to sit on his throne and welcome the people of his kingdom in to get a a just judgment. And David seems to have abandoned this role entirely. Jerusalem is not a large city. 
When I studied there at night, I'd take a walk around. It took about an hour to walk around the whole city wall. The old city is inside of that. The old city is the size of downtown Knoxville. And the palace is not, wasn't even as large as the square room. So David must have seen his son doing all the judging. And he doesn't seem to care. So Absalom is a deeply flawed leader, but he's responding to a real need. Human beings flourish when they're led by men and women who lead justly and who care particularly about the the oppressed. And I, I know America is not Israel, but I think there's a lesson here that our communities flourish best when leaders lead justly, when they have a vision of shalom and a special concern for the vulnerable. And so when we go to the polls this fall, however we vote, we should elect candidates that will lead justly. Now, before we move on, and I'm having a little trouble with my voice tonight. If you could just give me a little bit more back there, um, Rocky. Uh, could you give me just a little bit of help? Thank you. I want to ask again, what has happened to David? David now, they estimate, is about 60. He had this great capacity for loving well. We saw that with his relationship with Jonathan. But now he's just, he's immobilized. He's stuck. You know, his world has fallen apart. He's lost two children. We don't see him worshiping anymore. We don't see him with Nathan anymore. So maybe one of the reasons David is so passive as he enters this season of his life is because he's a broken man. You know, there there are different reasons why men are passive. And it's rarely because a man wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I'm just going to be passive today. It's usually because something's gone wrong. A lot of times a man is passive because life has sucked him dry. And a lot of times a man will say, especially when he hits the 50-60 mark, he'll say something like, you know, I think the best years of my life are behind me. I've thought that sometimes. And if you go down that slide too far, where do you end up? You become passive. You kind of mail it in. I'm not there tonight. I was there some years ago. And my brother Ray Kilarowski at Panera Bread kicked my sanctified rear end all over my uh, oatmeal. And... uh, told me I was believing a lie. And and he said, you know, I'm working on a white paper on old guys in the Bible who God rocked the world with. I don't think he's here tonight, but I'm going to tell. I think that'd be a great retreat for for some of us. Because when you look at Scripture, God loves to really blow the minds of old dudes (laughs) and and old ladies. You know, Caleb. Whoop, that didn't sound good. Oh, I don't know what the... (laughs) The analog to old dude is, but 
Caleb, Moses, you know, Sarah, Abram. So here, here's what I want to suggest to you tonight, is that if, 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 if you're honest with yourself, and this just doesn't have to be guys over 50, but if, if you're, guys, if you're honest with yourself, and you know you're not leading well right now, you know you're being passive, you know it's tearing your wife up, you know you're not leading well at work. Ray has a word he takes from the military, it's called road, retired on active duty. When you've decided, I'm, mail, I'm mailing this baby in, I'm done. If that's you tonight, go find a Nathan Go find a Ray or a Bruce or a Bob. You know, we've got lots of wonderful guys in our church who are throwing long in the fourth quarter. Don't retire on duty. Talk to somebody. And my last little mini sermon. I know I'm all over the map tonight, but um, a lot of times passivity comes from depression that comes from some of these deeper issues. Depression in a man at this point in his life can actually be a gift. And guys, if if that's where you are tonight, go talk to somebody. Talk to me, talk to a friend. Because what that depression is showing you is that the way you're living your life isn't working and that there's a better way. Your best years aren't behind you. I was with a, a brother a while ago, and he was going through a hard time. He said, you know, somebody said that dreams are for the young and memories are for the old. And at first I went, yeah. And then I said, no, <laughs> no, no. I mean, let's start putting dirt on you now. <laughs> you know, just come on. Wait, wait, wait. Well, you're not that far yet. So let's, let's not do that. Okay, one last thought before we move on. What if David had gone to his son and said, after they'd worked through their issues, and he'd said, you know, son, I'm tired. I've grieved. I've failed. My back hurts. My body aches. Could we walk together for a while, can I teach you what I know about the kingdom? And then could you, could you step into that? Think how different that would have been. You know, older leaders, men and women, remember that that's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to hang on till they have to pry us away from our desk with our cold, dead hand holding on to the iPad mouse or whatever. We're supposed to empower the next generation and release authority and release leadership. And I wonder how many Absaloms older leaders create because we don't do that. What are they supposed to do? Well, Absalom builds a political machine for four years, collecting favors, 
And then he says, Dad, I, I need to go worship at, at Hebron. Now, David is so checked out at this point that he doesn't notice that Dad is not invited on this little worship junket. And that 200 people that owe his son favors are all getting on the bus. Worship is used as a cover for political activity. And, and, and just, just to notice something, if, if you're paying attention and walking along with us in the story of the life of David, do you notice that authentic worship has disappeared? As ego and power have increased and it becomes just an Old Testament version of Game of Thrones, real worship disappears. It's just, it's, it's just a cover for political activity. And so again, I would say to you, a warning sign in your life, whether young or old, if the priority of worship is shrinking in your life and you find yourself more obsessed with the petty concerns of fighting for power, you're in trouble. You need to turn back to the Lord. Well, David trusts his son. He says, go in peace. Once they're all on this mountain worshiping, David, or rather, Absalom starts the revolution. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all of us servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape. We've come a long way in David's life. <laughs> Remember how brave he used to be, how he would always outfox old Saul, and now he's like a, I've got this, this old sleepy dog with a bum hip, and you almost run over the thing before he wakes up. And that's what David reminds me of here. Sherlock. Just kind of, car? <laughs> he's just, going through the motions. So David crosses over from Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley. He climbs the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. He crosses over from there to the Mount on the other side of the Jordan River. And one commentator pointed this out. I thought this is really interesting. The path that the first David takes out of Jerusalem is the path that the second David takes into Jerusalem. I think that's so hopeful and so significant because it's as if the author was saying no man can ever save you. No leader can ever save you. Even David himself can never save you. But there is a son of David. A son of God who is coming. And he will be your savior. The life of the first David reminds us of our need for the second David. And so I don't want to leave you tonight just with the last words of this rather sad story. Because this rather sad story points to the hope of the gospel. The God who redeems and heals all things through the cross. I want to end by just addressing a certain group of you we hit passive men real well. That was fun. But now let's move on. Uh, I'm chief of sinners, I know. 
I just, just want to say something to those of you who've been wounded by people in authority. Because I know Absalom does some really dumb things. He's a bad guy. Don't name your kid Absalom. Uh, you don't hear that a lot. Um, but there's another side to the story here. This is a son who desperately wanted to be in the presence of his father, and his dad never let it happen. And in some ways, I, I think his whole life, his anger, his fury, is in response to his broken relationship with his dad. And so I'm just led as we, as we end here tonight to, to, to just speak to those, to those of you who someone in authority has disappointed you, has not been there for you, has betrayed you. Last night we watched Spotlight. Oh, God. Oof. To, to, to watch about how the church let little children be abused and look the other way and what it did to the faith of so many. There's an especially soft place, tender place, when you've been wounded by those in spiritual authority. It's a unique wound. So just want to acknowledge that tonight, and I want to say to you, that's not the end of your story. Christ can heal the wounds that have come from those in authority over you especially those who've been in spiritual authority. Let's pray.